Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Introducing Carissa Green Industries. Let's get ready to launch. Hey, and welcome to this installment of KB Cast with me, KB. In this podcast, I meet with experts from around the globe to talk about the exec perspective on security matters. This week, I'm joined by Steve from Core Sentinel, a ridiculously qualified and experienced security specialist with a unique, no-nonsense perspective on the industry. Having worked and consulted to some of the biggest and more complex organizations globally, he's well and truly earned his stripes and understands the interface between tech and the business better than most. So, without further ado, welcome Steve. Steve, thank you so much for coming on my show today. How are you doing? Hi, KB. I'm great and good to chat with you. Awesome. All right. Well, let's dive straight in. Steve, can you walk me through your journey, where you started and where you are today? Basically, when I was quiet in my in my teen years, I was like, you know, my dad was, was working in business and he had a computer, so I used to be fascinated by um, how it worked and stuff, so... I used to play games on it and pull it apart and try and fix it and stuff. So anyway, um, eventually I got my own computer and then I was on this 2400 BPS modem and that was mm. like a um, – so I'd be connecting to bulletin boards and things. So this was um, well before the internet and um, basically you would just dial up over a 56 modem. Basically, um, the way it would work is you would just dial up and you would, you know, upload and download information and you'd be able to get like – you know, software, various different tools and test stuff. And I was just really into testing different software tools and different protocols like Z modem and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, what happened was the internet came in and all of that basically got tombstoned. It was finished. So when the internet came in, it was all of a sudden, you know, the bulletin boards were finished. So basically what we had was um, people connecting to the internet and it was just like one big Windows net BIOS share. So people... People were connecting and you were able to just literally connect straight on to everyone else on the internet. So there was no real security going on at all. Um, you're able to print to their printers, download their files. And this isn't just, you know, people locally. It was people all over the world. I mean, I'm talking about the whole Sydney CBD. There was power companies. Um, there was, you know, recruitment agents, law firms, everyone. The whole kit and caboodle was all completely wide open. Now, at this time, if you were to say to someone what a firewall was or even mention a firewall, they would probably think people had no Maybe. idea what you were talking yeah, about. Okay, yeah, okay, you got you, got you, got you. <laughs> so it was like a new phrase back then. Um, what this, this continued on for quite a while and people were just using the internet, um, you know, because they enjoyed it or because they were doing commerce on it and things like that. There was no SSL on any of the websites you would go and visit. So everything mm-hmm. you were typing into forms and stuff was just completely compromised still is to quite a bit to a certain to quite a bit of an extent and you know this went on and on and eventually we came to the point with the early 2000s so um, I remember I was on the first one of the people invited onto the Google Gmail um, mm-hmm. trial so it was an invite to anything at the time but basically they weren't even using SSL and I don't think they even started using SSL until around 2006 or something around that time I don't know the exact year but it was somewhere around then. Um, and so, um, 
yeah, I've just had a fascination in, in how these things work and how technologies work, how um, data communications works and all of that sort of thing for a long time. So I wanted to go into networking and, and I was always fascinated into how, you know, how to tweak things. So the reason I wanted to go into networking, there was hardly any security jobs. And I thought, well, if I'm, if I'm going to go in straight into school, into this sort of stuff, then networking, engineering, there's loads of jobs doing that. But I kept getting, because of my CV and the, and the things on it, I kept getting tapped on the shoulder um, and people kept coming to me and saying, well, we want you to do this job. And it was like, well, well I was thinking more about doing something like that um, in the networking because that's what I was applying for. So I was sort of disappointed to a certain extent because it was it, not because I, I didn't want to do security stuff. Like I love security, but it, because when you, you're actually going at something and you, you, you strive to achieve something or you have a goal to go and do something and someone's pulling you out and saying, no, we want you to do this, you sort of like, well, no, I, I want to do that. So it was sort of against the tide for me. I was sort of pulled into this profession based on my skill set from quite a, the, a, the very beginning, if you would say. Okay. <clears throat> um, so that's what's what leads us up to now. So we've had quite an extensive experience in different companies, organisations from government, um, public sector, private sector around the world, um, and have been in Australia since 2010, I think it was. I came back here and started working in Australian cybersecurity companies. Now, before I went overseas, it was a very much a immature, I wouldn't say immature, it's more of a, um, <clears throat> it wasn't a very um, developed, if, if the word is, mm. um, market. So there wasn't really, there wasn't really much going on. People weren't, still weren't thinking too much about it. And, and But when I came back, it was like, um, okay, this is, this is interesting because when you're in the UK, everything seems to be, you know, so in place and a lot of the um, companies you work for. But when you come back here, you notice how far behind Australia is and it's probably the same for the United States mm. as well. And I'd say they're probably maybe about five or six years ahead of us in terms of their, um, you know, security um, structure and how they've done everything over there. So I think in a lot of ways that that's a good generalisation. It's a good place to learn from, from where we're going with our security um, build-out in Australia, if that's what you want to call it. So where did you go? But you said you came back to Sydney 2010. Yeah. Um, I was in the UK. Okay. So, um, I was up in, in um, Scotland for seven years, but um, I didn't okay. like London. Um, but I was in, up and down from conferences and stuff for London. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I was at a few public sector companies. I was at some doing various different contracting and stuff over there. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just doing my overseas thing. But I'd always wanted to do something to do with penetration testing and this sort of testing because it was always something I'd always loved mm. doing and always researching from a very young age. And so this is always something I'd plan to do. Um, for where I am now, but it's always something that, um, I, because I've been doing other things, I haven't got around to it, but now I've finally gotten around to actually getting a company to where I want it to be, to where I'm actually mm -hmm. ready to sort of build it a little bit further, which has been a massive big project for me to do this. It takes a lot of, it's taken a lot of energy and um, a lot of thought has gone into it and a lot of um, that comes from my experience, not just on, on the internal side of a company who's who's working with penetration testing and engagements and security engagements and filtering them throughout the rest of the internal company, but also on the other side of things, I've had that experience in delivering these types of services. So I understand very well how both of these things work and, and 
and mm-hmm. how how that these deliverables are filtered through the organisation and how they digest them everywhere from all of the developers, the network engineers and the infrastructure people all the way through to the executive. And so when you're writing a report for this, it has to read well to all of these people and it has to be based on their business requirement as well. So a lot of, um, a lot of things that um, people are delivering or people do uh, organizations when it comes to security I think you really have to first of all filter what what that thing is that they're trying to achieve and filter it through the business requirement because if you're not filtering it through the business requirement then you're not going to know if there's a better way of doing something for example now I know that you've obviously got a lot of experience which is awesome that's why I was really yeah. keen to talk to you further more around the application security front yeah. so can we just dive more into let's talk more about OWASP top 10 now this podcast is dedicated to executives so can you explain firstly what that means so they can understand and then can you explain why executives should care about this okay basically the top 10 um, risks in application development and coding and to do with web applications as well as another one for mobile as well. They both overlap in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has to do with the top 10 threats which is and, and attacks, which is an industry type of um, consensus type of viewpoint of, of across the globe. So it's an open source kind of standardised way of saying we all think that this is the, what we have to look at and th- these are the threats and this is, this is where you risk are. Um, so this is a top 10 ways of attacking your organisation. And so because if by industry consensus that has been decided that this is the top 10 um, risks within or ways to you know exfiltrate data or what have you, then it's probably very important to, for executives to start thinking about you know, how they're going to be, you know, addressing that in terms of how we're going to integrate security into the application development process. Okay. And now let's let's go to one of the top 10. So executives may have heard, you know, an SQL injection. Can you walk me through how this would be carried out? Because, I mean, talking to executives, I think they probably have heard this stuff being thrown around, but I, I want you to yeah. give, a, a, you know, the best example as you can in terms that people can understand who, who don't come from a technical background so they know what this actually means and the repercussions that this has against an organisation. Okay, so um, an SQL injection typically um, involves user input fields in applications. Let's say a typical web application with a form at, at, at its simple simplest example. Um, so what happens is you type data into a form and press send or what have you. That data goes straight into a database, but instead instead of the database storing it, you, you're actually you can actually enter. SQL commands, which is SQL database commands, but get fed straight into the database, and the database interprets those commands rather than storing the data because you're mm-hmm. you're trying to, you know, tell the database to do things. So the beta, the database returns, you know, with instructions that you're telling it to do. So you're actually feeding that data through to, to from the front end on the public facing in, internet back into the back end database. The way that the reason that it occurs is because. Um, for starters, developers aren't taught um, secure code. If you look through application development textbooks, there's not a real great deal on, of, of literature or um, advice on how to develop secure code unless you're looking at a, a textbook that specifically looks at that. So Can it I starts ask why? from. 
that well, this is something that's always that, been thrown around. I'm, I'm just curious, and I, I'm sure a, a hundred you know people out there are curious about this. Okay, so I, I think that okay, so there's a lot of reasons for this, but I think that the reason this is so is because people go and develop an application. They do it because they want it to perform some particular function, and mm-hmm. if they can get it to do what they want it to do, yes. then that's that's all they need to be able to do. And it's right. like that all across the industry in, in, mm-hmm. in everything, whether it comes from you know deploying a telephone system network or a, you know a, a, a web application. Um, developers usually just want to get the thing working so they can right. get it over the line. They've got milestones, they've got pro, um, project, um, you know, deliverables to have done on time. And so usually that's their objective to get it done on time. Um, but basically, um, back to your question, um, how this happens is that the, the data gets put into a form. Um, it's not properly, um, there's no input validation usually. Um, and there's no data sanitization either. Mm-hmm. So what happens is an input validation is basically just ensuring that the input meets the uh, you know, correct criteria. For example, mm-hmm. if I've got a telephone number, uh, I'm going to make sure that it's only, it only takes numbers at that field and it only takes eight numbers if it's only for eight-digit telephone numbers, for example. I'm not going to let it take special characters that you can filter into a database. Now, if it does have special characters that could be telling the, the um, database what to do and that's a requirement for the form field, you're going to have both anyway, but there's also something called data sanitization, and, and that is basically modifying that inputted data to actually make sure that it conforms to the way that it should be entered into a database, and that's another way you can mitigate against these types of attacks. Um, these, this type of input validation across all user fields, not, not just for SQL injection, but th- th- there's an awful lot of attacks that are all based on the way that an application uh, processes the input and the way it validates and sanitizes that input. It's all based on the lack of input validation and sanitization for a great deal of the stuff we see out there. Okay. Now, I wanted to get your opinion on a particular topic that's been, you know, a rather hot topic, and it's GDPR. And I know that we obviously live in Australia, but there's still, you know, a level of compliance around that. So can you please walk me through how a man-in-the-middle attack is performed and then we can sort of circle back on the GDPR thing. Okay. So a man in the middle attack is basically so, um, you know, well, on the internet, at its simplest form, if you're talking to another computer or via your browser and you're not using SSL, which is the way to encrypt it, then, you know, obviously that information is passing through a lot of computers on your internal network that you don't may or may not know who's administering. Then that goes out onto the internet and passes through a whole lot of routers. Sometimes those routers can bounce in and out outside of different countries before it even gets to the destination server that you're talking to. And a lot of the time, even in Australian companies, it's cheaper to host in in the United States. So before it gets to the United States, you're bouncing around to, um, you know, you could be going to Japan, China, Russia, and then the US. You never know what route that's going to take. It's it's like the the, the least, um, it's it's, it's the quickest path cost is usually the 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 way routing works. And that's that's how the traffic arrives. So that's, um, that's just the amount of different 
um, areas where um, people could be sniffing on, or, or you know, any type of sensitive data, such as usernames and passwords, or your privately, personally identifiable information, and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so that's that's just at its simplest form in an SSL um, without SSL, and then you've got you know, there's ways to do to intercept uh, certificates um, if there's no certificate signing going on, and you can present a false certificate. So although there is SSL going on, you've terminated and the connection, you can sit in between it because you're sending the um, victim a false certificate, which isn't a real one because they didn't have a real one to begin with. Uh, so they get an error that says, oh, this certificate isn't valid and they just press OK and they answer the wrong details. So. Right. Well, obviously, so what's so what's your opinion with the with the GDPR? So what? So obviously, you know, intercepting you know sensitive information. There's this whole thing malarkey going on around that. What, what's your opinion? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's um, you know, it was, it was like a bit of a launch. I, I don't know if it was actually. Um, it was like everyone get ready for this, and then all of a sudden it was built right up, and there was lots of hype behind it, and then mm-hmm. it, it all happened. It's a European thing, anyway. Um, yes. We're not in the European Union. Um, no. Most a lot of companies aren't, so everyone was like a lot of things in security. They get hyped up um, to a, a lot more than they should be. So when it eventually launched, now everyone's twiddling their thumbs, going, "Well, what was all that all about?" Um, I personally don't. Think it's 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 a big deal um, in Australia at least. Anyway, I'm not even sure if it's that big a deal for. Um, I mean, this is just my opinion. I, I'm not working in European companies anymore, um, like because I don't have to work with their compliance. So luckily, <laughs> um, but um, I, I don't even think it, it just just even um, you know a way to to sort of make sure that everyone's in, in compliant of that sort of a thing that is just so enormous but it's almost um, unmanageable um, from that point of view as well. So it's a really, um, I I think it was just overblown, maybe because we're all on LinkedIn and we all get all this stuff on GDPR, um, you know, but uh, maybe it it affects larger enterprises a lot more than it does, um, like international businesses a lot more than it does most other businesses or or something. But whatever it is, uh, I I think it was a little bit overblown. I don't think, you know, know, in Australia at least, no one's going to be saying we need someone who can do compliance for our X, Y, or Z. You know, there's much more important things than compliance. No, no, you're right, and I, I I agree with you. I saw a lot of you know webinars and sign here and do this, and we got to learn more about it. I don't really. I mean, uh, uh, people still do ask me about it, but I mean, I haven't seen as much hype as I had originally. It was like every yeah. like every post was like someone in security was like around that. So do you, when you talk about the hype, do you think it was for more financial? purposes that people were sort of trying to advertise this because again it's another wave it's it's ai it's machine learning it's another hype thing that people thought that perhaps they could gain more funds out of this or um yeah there's a lot of stuff that goes on like that i I think there's a lot of it had to do with a lot of companies capitalizing off off gdpr as a buzzword it was a bit like when the privacy laws get changed as soon as something like that happens everyone goes oh look the privacy laws are changing everyone come and buy our products because we'll make you more secure now a lot of the times that um you know they're they're true and accurate but they should be making a big fuss about these sort of things but um a lot of the times you know and i think gdpr is a real classic example is that sometimes it is taken a little bit over the top 
Got you, got you. So just mm. just on the back of that, what would you what would your advice be to someone who probably doesn't really know is getting bombarded with people around GDPR? What would your advice be to, to sort of acknowledge it, but then I mean they don't have to be sort of staying awake at night freaking out about it, considering it's not even our part of the world. Okay, so first of all, I'm not anti GDPR. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, good privacy stuff in GDPR. Before I go any further with this conversation, so I'm not anti GDPR. All I'm saying is that there's a lot more important things for us to be doing, especially in security, mm-hmm. anyway, than, than, than doing stuff because GDPR tells us to do so. Now, this is a legislation, and legislation is often pushed through, um, which, which the, the, the way to align a legislation with a security framework is not really a simple thing to do. So, um, and a classic example is, is you know, trying to say, well, we need to access the backdoor encryption for everything, you know what I mean? So, what's been going on. I mean, you can legislate something like that, but how do you do it? And you've got legislators who, who don't understand security mm-hmm. um, and, and people who don't want to, they're just dictating, well, we need to have this done. And so you're going to have to figure out a way. And, and you know, it's like there's a there's a bit of a, um, um, that people, you know, the security industry appears to be getting stonewalled to a certain extent because it appears to be like um, law enforcement is their, um, their goals are more important than security. Um, so it's like, it, which, you know, arguably that may be the case in, in a lot of areas. But I think, um, you know, I, I think that um, in, when in, in that sort of a, a scenario, um, that um, law enforcement requirement needs to be a bit more targeted rather than mm-hmm. just blanket security or blanket um, lack of privacy. Because you often hear like that security and privacy are two different things and it's security versus privacy. And that's, it's been framed the wrong way. Um, it's not at all security versus privacy. And I don't mm-hmm. think you can have um, security without privacy. So, and Bruce Schneier's talked about this before as well. And I, I agree mm-hmm. with a lot of the stuff that he said about it is that you can't have security, but it's not a false, it, 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 is, it is a false dichotomy framing it like that. Um, you can't have one without the other. So the more you take away privacy, the less secure you're making everyone else. So you need to be able, I think what we need to be doing is make things a lot more targeted in that sort of, you know, legislative area rather than, you know, blanket, mm. putting out these blanket legislations that just dictate things sure. from legislators to security people, from legislators yes. who don't really understand how these things operate or work or function in any way. So um, there's sort of like a, there's not really a very much of a bridge between the legislators and the engineers is another mm. way of putting it. Okay. Well, no, I think that absolutely. I think that's, that's a really good way to look at it, and I think it's it's really about get, getting different perspectives on, on how people think about this. So, what yeah. I'd like to know, in your opinion, why? So, we talked, you know, about SQL injections and men in the middle attacks. Why do you believe executives? need to pay more attention to these type of attacks because I think in memory of working working in this industry and working in the consulting side, I don't think many of these people were aware of this type of stuff and they're sort of just hoping <coughs> that it's just looked after. So what's your advice on yeah. that in your opinion? Um, okay, so I think the whole industry is, is in a bit of flux at the moment and um, it, it's really hard to say. And every, every um, organisation is at a different 
um, stage. So some organisations are a lot more secure, um, a lot more mature in their security. Some of them are a lot less mature, and it's surprising because you know you've got to have an open mind because you never know which are going to be the mature ones. You can take a, a good enough guess, but it's really amazing what you see out there. Um, yeah. But but I think because the whole industry is in a state of flux, I think it's about make, ensuring that your business process is still going to function while applying security controls um, every, everywhere you can in the organisation, but aren't going to stop the business from functioning because that's what security is about. Security is about putting controls in place which enable the business to function more efficiently rather than less efficiently. That's really what security is all about. Now, now putting that people in, having people that are well-educated is one thing. I think you've got to start from the people. Um, from an application development point of view, you've also, from people are one thing, but you've also got to have, so you've got to have good awareness training and all that sort of stuff going on because that really is key. The second thing is you've got to have um, security implemented from the start in terms of code. So you've got to have people developing secure code and, it, you know, they might not have been taught that at university or wherever they learnt it. So you've got to have secure code guidelines and policies that they should be referring to or, or you know, making sure they follow and guidelines that they follow mm -hmm. while they're developing the code. Now, there's good tools out there that you can use but actually teach coders as they go if they're not going to be writing something that's secure but actually flag it as they're coding it. So there's stuff out there right now that does that sort of thing. Um, not everyone's using it. Not everyone has the budget to use it either. So, again, it comes down to budget constraints in where people are with their security as well. The second thing is, or the third thing I should say is, you know, penetration testing, before you go and anything goes live, it should be undergo a thorough security test, particularly a um, web application or a mobile application or anything that's about to go live for that matter. I shouldn't just leave it those two. But um, So that's why having a development environment to test on before it's opened up to the internet is absolutely crucial. But it doesn't always happen. And people, you know, some people just go straight to live. Right. Uh, and so that's, um, I mean, like I said, it, it, the industry is in a massive state of flux. And I'll, I'll frame it like this, because what happened was there's companies that have been around for, say, you know, 10, 20, so like decades, now, then they had all this IT infrastructure put in place. They've never had to deal with cybersecurity before. Okay, so mm. this is a new thing. So the way that it's structured in organisations is still very experimental. People don't know how to put in, engineer this into their architecture. Still, I think it's still in a very much an experimental stage. But mm. I know who to employ to do what, and there is there's like it's very hard to find a skill set to do the sorts of things you want them to do. So. Um, for a lot of organisations, they're experimenting. Oh, I hear like they hear the executives might hear, but they need someone to do this, that, and the other. But they don't know how to actually integrate that into their organisations. There's a lot of that going on, um, and and it comes back to you know this um, it's implementing security from the inception of a project. Well, it's it's like well, you know our company's been around for this long. And we didn't have it from the start, so mm -hmm. we've only just been you know this has only just dropped on our desk, and it's that important. We didn't know about it. And that's why it's going to be so hard to sort of, you know, all of a sudden integrate. And, and that's why we work. Yeah, it's, it's why we're at where it's, it's the reason we're at where we are now is because of that. Now, Steve, do you believe executives are acutely aware 
of these issues, the issues that you and I have just been speaking in the last 30 or so minutes, yeah. or do you just assume that it's just the IT guys will just sort it out for them? Now, I know this is a question everyone keeps talking about, but I want it to be your honest, your raw opinion about what you actually think about this. Um, yeah, I think that a lot of them, it, it, like I said, it, it depends on the organisation and it, some executives may not be that, um, may, not, may not care as much as others. Now, some of them care and I think a lot of it is because they don't want to look bad. Um, so they're doing it to make their checkbox checked and say, well, here's some budget, go and do X, Y or Z. Um, but I, I, some of them genuinely are and it really depends on um, which executives you've got, I guess. <laughs> Right. But it's um, uh, how would I answer this? I, I think that, that they're always going to be looking at the IT department to say, okay, you know, this this is all on you. But the security function is no longer um, part of the IT function so much. It's more of an integrated business crossover. It's, it's more of a risk function. So it's a risk and audit function. It works in that way because you can't have the foxes counting the chickens. So I think what's happening with organisational structure is, and this is why some of these questions you ask me about security, in my opinions, are so all over the place, is because that's just the way the industry is right now. It's getting better, but it's, it really depends on the organisation you're in. But structuring it so that you've got that separation there makes that audit function work a lot better because then you don't have the, fo the foxes counting the chickens. This also happens from an executive point of view because you've got the CISO um, sitting next to the CIO. Now, that's another very new position that no one wants to do. I, I don't think I'd want to be a CISO either, to be honest. But um, mm -hmm. anyway, so that's, that's, that's my five-second thoughts on it. I'm curious, and, and generally I've always been told when I ask questions it always comes from a place of curiosity. Now, I know that you have an extensive list of certs. So... What is your advice around this? Now, a friend of mine, her husband wants to get into pen testing, so she called me up. I haven't spoken to this girl for a couple of years. I've known him for about seven or eight years, and I, I gave him some recommendations to, to getting into the pen testing space. And to be honest, so many people on the weekly ask me about how do I get into it? What do I do? What are some tangible certifications that people can do, or even where can these people start? Well, I've always liked it. Um, I've always liked doing this sort of thing because for me, it was like a, it was like solving a puzzle. It was like, oh yes, I got in. And, and, you know, a lot of people get that buzz out of it. And so for me, that's what it's always been all about. And that's why I got into it. But the other thing is that I think you need to be a very um, curious person, which, which I am. Um, you also need to be someone who like, I don't watch a lot of TV. Uh, you know, I like watching a good series occasionally, but I don't watch a lot of TV. So if you're going to go and burn through a whole lot of certs like I've done, you can do that. It's not it's not that hard. Um, you've just got to think about how you, you spend your time. Um, if you were going to do one that you wanted to focus on pen testing, I'd probably look at the offensive security OSCP. I think that's probably, probably the um, baseline for a penetration testing skill set. Um, that's the offensive security certified professional. So if you're only ever going to do one and do do it for this industry, that's the one you would do. 
in terms of how otherwise you would get into this industry, I think it really comes down to, you know, you're really interested in doing this sort of stuff. You like learning. If you don't like learning, you're not going to be interested in this. Now, I'm the sort of person that gets bored very quickly if I'm doing the same thing. I have to be constantly, like, absorbing information. In fact, if I'm not doing that, then I get bored very quickly. If, if you just want to come into this industry and think that oh, I'm just going to have a job and, and then I'll be doing the nine-to-five thing, that's not going to be the industry that you're going to expect because it's a constant learning thing. Now, that might not be for you, and if it is, and if you love learning stuff and you like to know how things work and you like to know everything inside out, then it might work really well for you. Um, also, the um, just just the technical side of things as well um, is probably one of the strongest sides you need to have, but that's not all because you need to be very well written because you need to be able to write reports that, that read well from the executive all the way down to everyone else who's going to be digesting them in an organisation. So um, if you're going to look at it as a profession, there are two different things. Now, for me, I find the, the technical part the easy part, and that's the fun part. And then you've got to write the report, and that's the other part. You don't part like that part? <laughs> I, 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 well, I, I, I like it and I don't like it. So... I, I like finishing them, writing them, and but I, I do actually, um, to a certain extent, I, I take pride in in what I do. So I'm, I like to make sure that it presents well, and we make make sure that they're QA'd properly before they get sent out. And um, yeah, so that, that that's the the real part that you sort of go, oh, you know, if you're a technical person, you've got to do the reporting. You know, it's it part and parcel. It's like again, you can't really sort of compartmentalise it. And, and a lot, yes. I think a lot of people are thinking this industry, well, okay, we're going to try and compartmentalise the, the um, different parts of this engagement. And, again, it comes, it, then it becomes a bit more of a Chinese whispers type thing so that the technical person isn't, uh, you know, writing the report. We're just saying, well, this, here's what I found and then you've got a report writer. Now, there's, that's not how generally it's done at the moment, but I have seen a lot of people mm. talking about doing that sort of thing. But, um, there's a massive disconnect there. Is that a fair assumption? Exactly. Uh, and and this, is, this is the reason, this is one of the things I've identified of all of the engagements I've worked on and bo on both sides is the disconnect that's been going on in, in this area that a lot of people are just technical. And because they're just technical, they're just doing a technical engagement, they write a report and then they drop it on the desk of the customer and the customer goes, okay, well, what do I do with this? You know what I mean? What does so, this mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so when you're writing a report, you have to be writing that report for the customer and filtering it, filtering it through their business requirements because that's the most important thing. It needs to make sure it meets those business requirements and you need to understand exactly what their risk um, is, what their risk appetite is, what their, you know, ask them, what, 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 what do you see your risks are as and what do we see your risks as based on the conversation we've had and what, mm -hmm. and what, what, what is basically the, the risk profile in terms of, you know, when we, we add all those things together, what, what are we going to focus on during this test, you know, them in. So yeah, sure. um, a lot of consultation has to go into it. And uh, so it's not just a technical thing. So it, it is a very, a very complex piece of work. But I would start off doing technical stuff um, because ultimately, if you're not going to be doing technical stuff, then you're not going to enjoy doing the um, the rest of the, this sort of stuff. So yeah, sure, yeah. No, absolutely. That's interesting you say that. I've never the pen testers have ever worked beside. They'd obviously do the report. I'd help present it because they're like, look, we need you. You know, you like people, and we don't really like humans that much. So. 
yeah. I, but that, that's interesting because I, I, I agree with you. I think getting someone else to write the report when one they didn't do the test definitely would be would be to see a massive disconnect there. So I haven't seen a lot of that, but that that's interesting. Yeah. So now <clears throat> speaking about all this pen testing stuff. Now, there's a lot of pen testing companies out there. There's some bigger firms, smaller players, you know, medium-sized players. Now, how should companies hire a pen testing firm and what questions should they be asking and what things should people be looking out for when when going to market to find a firm to, to do this type of work? Okay, so I think you may need to be looking at what's the primary function of this organisation that um, we're looking at because a lot of go-to organisations might offer this as a service but that's not their specialisation. They might offer other services as well and they might be security related or they might just be offering this service and and often it happens because they're reselling someone else's service. Um, So one thing to look for, is this a specialisation that the company's doing or is this just one of the thing, many things they're doing. So we do it as a specialisation, for example. The other thing to look at is what, about, what is the experience and the qualifications of the person who's doing this? And people go, you know, certification, this, that and that, and, you know, they don't mean anything. Well, you know, I had that attitude before, but basically the customer likes to see that, and we're doing this for the customer. The customer that sees all these certifications, they're going to go, well, that's what I want to see. Um, so, you know, um, for me, it wasn't just a learning experience doing the certs I've got. It's also comes from my interest and stuff but it's also um, for the customer it's what they want so it's also a good thing to look for and it's a good indicator another thing to look for is things I would look out just you know make, making sure that the tester has good experience and qualification in the industry in doing this uh, making sure I would definitely go for a specialist organization rather than the one-size-fits-all security company the reason I say Please. that is because Sorry. Just to interject, sorry to cut you off. I just, when you say specialist, so do you mean specializing in web apps, specializing in, you know, iOS, Android? Is that what you mean? Or do you mean more just a pen testing firm that that only does this and is not like a security shop? If it's a doing security testing, right? So it, it, it's that audit function. And the reason I say that is because um, when you have that specialization, then you become a lot better at doing that certain sort of thing rather than just this watered down a little offering that you're reselling or you, you, that you've got one person that does that one day and does 10 other things at the same day. So, yep. So the reason is, um, the other reason is because later down, it's from an audit point of view, but you can't have the foxes counting the chickens. So you don't want to be going to someone who's who's going to be doing a a pen test on your organisation and then providing a report for you who's also going to be delivering some other product in there as well because um, then you've got a conflict of interest. Then there's there's a possibility you might run into um, uh, a problem from an audit point of view because, you know, you've got the same people doing the testing as you have implementing Mm. the things, if you know what I mean. Yes, of course. that's definitely something to look for. Now, if you come to us to do this sort of engagement, you're not going to run into any conflict of interest because it's what we specialise in. That's just what we do. And, and we're not the sort of people that goes, goes and delivers things. I know some very good people that do that. And I can recommend people that do that sort of stuff. And, and I can recommend other um, people that do, you know, for example, offer really good web application firewalls. I, I can resell you one, but I don't. I'd rather just point you in the right, right direction because it, it offers better value to the customer 
customer and say, well, here's what you need to do to get the web application firewall set up through this person or X, Y, or Z, because if I'm just reselling it, it doesn't really offer any value. I'm just putting a, you know, I'm just putting my cut on top of that. So, um, and then everything just goes through me as a middleman. And I don't think that really, that re- doesn't really help anyone at the end of the day. No, sure. No, I totally get that. And I think specializing in a particular area is absolutely the way to go, especially in security, considering it is so broad and there's so many different domains and so many different areas. But yeah. I'd like to thank you for your time. It's I was really looking forward to this podcast because it's something that's been playing on my mind for a while and it's something that a lot of people actually ask. And I know that you've shared a lot of your knowledge and your expertise and you've shared your opinions, which I've absolutely enjoyed. And lastly, if people were to have any questions around pen testing or anything like that, how can people find you? Okay, you can just um, come to our website. You can submit a contact form. You can um, also arrange a meeting. Um, you can schedule in a meeting at a time that suits you. You can, you can get on the phone. You can drop me an email. You can send me a LinkedIn. Uh, so, yeah, very contact. Smoke signal. <laughs> yeah, that's another way of doing it. Yeah. Um, because, because we're a smaller organisation as well, we're a lot more, we work a lot closer to the client. We're a lot more responsive. Uh, we're not like an organisation where you phone someone up and then that all goes into the into the um, oblivion and you don't hear from 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 a week as well so uh, we work a lot more on a on a closer type of um, engagement process with, with the client as well wonderful well thank you so much for your time steve i really do appreciate it and i hope that we can do this again soon thanks kb cheers thanks again for joining us i hope you got some insights from this episode of kb cast with me kb Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play to get every new episode as it's released. And as always, show notes are available from kbcast.com for every single episode. We're building a community, so always love to get feedback, ideas or questions on hello at kbcast.com. Keep on keeping on.